0: Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten Podcast. Joining me today is the Prince of Darkness himself, the Thunder from Down Under. Daz, who's going to teach us all about his day job, his fiat day-to-day pleb life, is looking after the local grid. He is on top of his game when it comes to teaching anybody about electricity. He's written some articles about this, they're very, very pleb friendly. You can get into those, I'll make sure I've got the links in the show notes to those. He's doing great work, plebs. Get up in his DMs, ask him any questions about electricity or home mining because he's doing it himself. He's linked both his passions and his career. So he's got Bitcoin and mining for his passions. His career is just electricity, but you know, where would we be without it? We go down the deep rabbit hole of this and I really hope you enjoy the episode please reach out to Daz like I said in the DMs. Before we get into the show, make sure you're stacking or mining in this case, but please be stacking, sats You can use services such as Swan Bitcoin in the US. Long supporters of the show, big shout out to Yan and Corey and all of the guys over at Swan doing amazing work. And over here on this side of the pond, UK and Europe, we have Coin Corner based out of the Isle of Man, can accept euros and sterling deposits. Big things to come from this company. Keep a close eye on them. They are doing great work. Bitcoin Reserve, also in Europe, can look after some sterling customers. Make sure you check beforehand whether it's possible. You can stack 1,000 euros a day on your card with these guys or 50 grand and over you're going to get a wet wet glove, a white glove service where they're going to talk your boomer friends through everything they need to know about self-custody. Relay are just like Swan in the US. It's just an app. Download it and start converting your fiat into those sweet satoshis. That's R-E-L-A-I dot C-H. Again, all links in the show notes to all of these companies. All of these companies I've just mentioned will beg you to take control of your coins. Do not leave them on the apps. Do not leave them on the exchanges. Sweep them straight off into your hardware wallet you can use the bitbox o2 bitcoin only hardware wallet shift crypto have you covered that will get you a five percent discount if you use code bitten at checkout on anything that you purchase from shift crypto brilliant company now do you want to get to the conference april 6th and the 9th in miami so we are in florida huge conference going to be massive four days day one is industry day for enterprising bitcoiners that are looking to build in the space and network or looking for investment. And day two and three will be the big surprise announcements from Nayib Bukele or people such as Michael Saylor, Elizabeth Stark, Jack Mallers, Adam Back and many, many more. Just check the website for a list of all the speakers. Saferdin is heading over there as well, I believe. So there's going to be a lot of people there you can learn from. Day four is Sound Money Fest headlined by rapper and fellow Bitcoiner Logic. It's going to be Steve Aoki, CL, Run the Jewels, San Holo, Deadmail 5, and the list goes on. Last year's conference sold out, and this year's is on pace to be three times larger and selling quickly too. Tickets do go up in price, so check the link. Insert code BITTON for 10% off, and enjoy this rip with Daz. I think I'm in. Dad, you're there. Hey, can you hear me? We can, mate. We are straight up recording. Like there's there's you know, we're straight into this. This is the new. This is the new way.
1: We're on. We're on. We are. I'm mucking around. Hey, Lauren, happy birthday for the other day. Thank you.
0: Uncle Dad sent you some sats.
1: Thank you for the sats and
0: thank you. I <laughs> know oh, they'll be huddled with love. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, do you have any questions for Des? I do. Mm -hmm. So my first... Why didn't you send me more sets? No. (laughs) My first question is, uh, so I heard that you were an electrician or
1: were. Um, Why why did you become an electrician? That's actually a really good question. I always wanted to be an electrician, but I didn't actually become an electrician. We call ourselves sparkies in Australia. It's just one of those things us Aussies give ourselves nicknames for everything, but I always wanted to be a Sparky, but I didn't actually come into that until later in life. I I think I was 30 years old by the time I started my apprenticeship. So I was actually a salesman before that. And it was just one of those things that I always intrigued me and always interested me, um, but I never pulled the trigger on it. And then, you know, it must've been that hitting 30, Started to panic, started to think, geez, you, you're starting to get old now, you're, starting, you know, you're going to have to grow up and, and become a man. Um, <laughs> what do you want to do with your life? And uh, realized that um, what I was doing beforehand wasn't it. And so I just you know, put up my hand. It wasn't easy, actually, to get into the industry. I, being that age and having no trade background, I actually had to, um, to apply a few years in a row, particularly for the local utility company where I, where I ended up working they paid quite well Uh, and, you know, being later in life, having commitments like mortgages and starting families and so forth, it was basically the only place I could afford to do an apprenticeship was at the local utility.
0: uh, Do you know what local utility is?
1: Um, is it where someone like, um, um, if you don't yeah uh, yeah uh, can you explain what a local utility is Sure so depending on where where you are located like for for, for us in uh, where I live in Queensland and particularly North Queensland our local utilities are government state owned entity and they do the power distribution so they're the ones that own all the assets and basically are responsible for getting the electricity from the generation where we where we make the electricity or, or generate the electricity through to your home so they own all the poles and all the wires and all those funny pieces of equipment you might drive past uh, so that that's who i work for um, and and that's what we do is is basically make sure that the power gets to the end user when you guys want to turn your lights on we need to make sure that that power is there ready for you to do that when you when you flick that switch
0: all right okay. pretty important job huh mm-hmm because that power powers your Wi-Fi too. Oh my
1: God, I cannot. <laughs> Wi-Fi.
0: Well, exactly, can do it's this. the
1: uh, it's the priority. It should be all priority load is the is the Wi-Fi, the home
0: Wi-Fi. Absolutely, I think it's like uh, it should be included in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, shouldn't it? Like uh, right <laughs> between shelter and and water, most likely is going to be uh, Wi-Fi, especially for this generation. Definitely, no one yeah. can live without their phone or Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. No, certainly not. Not in the world of today. And guess what, Lauren? We have a new money for that new world. Mm -hmm. What is it? Absolutely in it. Correct. Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) And it relies heavily on the electricity network.
0: So they're uh, definitely intertwined. Which is what Daz and I are going to talk today about. We're going to talk about his his day-to-day work. Uh, The reason being, I I had... um, Another guy who was based in Australia, he's not an Australian, but Jake was on a few weeks back. He was talking about ship broking and how that kind of worked. So I'm trying to do uh, an interview series of just plebs that are out there just telling us about their day-to-day jobs. And it just, right. uh, like Jake's job, it helped us understand like the shipping industry and supply chain choking up and, and all of this kind of strange weirdness that he has to do in his day-to-day to have mm-hmm. these ships moving around the world. Daz is going to tell us about the power grid and what he does and and how that works. This is very interesting to a lot of Bitcoiners because they want to start mining. Some people want to mine at home. Right. Daz is going to tell us all about it. (laughs) So you want to stick around for that or you No, no. I need to to eat and change and
1: yeah.
0: Priorities. (laughs) Okay. Well, do you want to say goodbye?
1: Yep. Uh, See you whenever. And yeah. Bye. See you next time. See you, mate. Bye.
0: All right, cheers. So before we before we do dive into that, um, previous role, salesman, selling what?
1: I was, it was the typical epitome of fiat salesman jobs. I sold cigarettes for a living. I was a tobacco sales rep. So it was, you know, I was only just reflecting on this. I knew this had come up today. So I was, I was reflecting on this today and thinking back, it, it is just the absolute classic example of the worst of the of the worst jobs really um when you when you when you think back about how much money the cigarette industry makes and particularly in Australia the excises in the tax in order to buy these things I just simply do not know how people afford to smoke anymore and you know it's one of those typical things that have been uh, engineered through industry and you know, and and you can find those examples of like doctors suggesting that cigarette smoking was good for you. Like, you know, way back in the, in the, in the early decades of the, of um, of the, you know, 1950s to 60s to 70s kind of thing before that whole, whole attitude pivoted. And And it is one of those industries that's been engineered that it does nothing, absolutely nothing for you, but take the money out of your pocket, harms your health doesn't give you any gratification you know from 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 uh, consuming them uh, and costs a fortune it's 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 a really disgusting industry and I think back and I shake my head that I was a part of it to be honest
0: how'd you get into that
1: uh, That's kind of a long long story so I, I started sales journey was mobile phones so that's where I started I used to work for um a, a large uh, company uh, here in Australia Telstra selling basically mobile phones in call centers. And then I met my wife, uh, you know, while working at that call, my now wife at the call center. And then we decided we would go and go and teach English. So we packed up our bags and we went and lived in Prague for about eight months um, back in 2006. And then I uh, happened to know a guy who worked in that industry used to work with me um, at, at Telstra and he, Called me up while we were living in Prague and said, "There's a job going at this tobacco company. Would you?" Like? And I actually used to smoke back then, uh, disgustingly. So I was like, "Free durries, let's let's go." Uh, so that's when we come back and I and I work for that industry and I did that for a number of years, uh, on and off. Worked for a different uh, couple of different tobacco companies. I worked for some snack brand companies. I worked for Nestle, uh, selling coffee and so forth. So I fluttered around doing that repping role, but. It was never something I was passionate about or, or loved doing. And that's how I sort of landed on, on this. Well, what do I want to actually do? Um, and I had a little bit of an interest in um, electronics. I used to muck around with electronic circuits and I was trying to teach myself um, how to do that. And I had a sort of side hustle doing audio visual installations because I have a, a background in audio engineering from, from back in the day when I, from my guitar and my music stuff. So, um, I used to flutter around a little bit like that, and I said, you know what, it'd be really handy if I knew how to, or I had the qualification to install electrical circuits alongside this um, this other interest I had in, in doing audio-visual installations, and that's sort of where it was, how the sort of story began, and how I ended up, um, you know, falling into the, the the electrical trade.
0: All right, so a few things before we get to the electrical trade. Free dunnies, is that what you said? It...
1: Free durries.
0: Durry, <laughs> what what what, what a that's, that's,
1: Aussie. that's Aussie. That's Aussie for uh, cigarettes, Siggies. Siggies, <laughs> duries, darts. You
0: know, duries. I, I, I've heard darts. I've heard Siggies, Duries is a new one. Duries. Oh yeah, you
1: got yeah. a brand yeah. name Come or it. it's just... more. Nah, it's just one of those Aussie slang things that we like to do. Is you know, things a million different names. The duries.
0: I love it. All right. That's a new one. That's a new one on me. And I'm now I'm imagining like a bunch of like 25 to 30 year old kids walking around Prague with an Aussie accent. And uh, like, yeah, that's got to be awesome.
1: Yeah. Uh, my wife, she's actually a lot more articulate than I am. I, I do have the very typical Aussie drawl, and she'd often have to um, translate for me because uh you know speaking rather quickly and all the words blend into each other. She would and we had a lot of um lot of lot of pommies over there actually and uh they really struggled to understand me. So she'd quite often have to, you know, at lunchtime while we were working uh translate what I was what I was saying.
0: (laughs) So you did I mean where were you selling them into into like the, the local stores supermarkets to tobacconists yeah, what what what's that how does that look you just yeah, rock so, up and say my cigarettes taste better than those cigarettes uh, like i mean how do you even make a sale i don't get it that's-
1: that's exactly what it used to do. So it was, uh, we it wasn't direct to consumer. It was de- direct to retail outlets. So the people who actually sell the cigarettes to the consumers. So it was all those. It was grocery stores. It was service stations. It was corner stores. It was tobacconists. Um, anybody who who sold cigarettes, we'd basically go and talk to, and it was all about, you know. In a declining market, uh, it was one of the best sales jobs you could ever have, actually, because there was no sales targets because people were literally dying. Uh, (laughs) Or, um, you know, so the volume was always declining. I shouldn't laugh about that. It's horrible. But, um, you know, the, the volume was always declining. So it wasn't ever a sales target where you had to go and sell X amount of cigarettes. It was all about market share. So it was more like if you know, X amount of packets are sold, we want to make sure we have 45% of all sales be our brand. So it was exactly that. It was uh, going to the retailers and educating them. There are slight distinctions on flavours and, you know, um, and, and various quality of tobacco that goes in the products and so forth. So it was actually a lot more goes into it than you think. And it was actually quite fascinating, to be to be perfectly honest, to, to, to work in that industry and see the other side of it. But, uh, yeah, it was... You know, literally being a dying industry, uh, it was. It was. I had to get out. So at some point, you, know, you had to realize that this does not have a
0: future. What made you kick it yourself?
1: Basically, leaving the company. So I'm like, I'm not paying for these for these things. So I I quit. Pretty much a month before, or two months before I started uh, in my electrical trade, I quit cold turkey. Just had to get rid of them. Here's a little industry. Secret four years uh, for all you plebs out there listening and you're like, how do I stack more sats? And you still have the uh, the habit of, of smoking cigarettes is there's a book out there called Alan Carr's easy way to stop smoking. It guarantees you to stop. So the, the art, one of the hardest things about stopping smoking is, is the process of actually going through it. And by having this book, it just gets your mind prepped for all the little tricks your subconscious mind's going to play on you when you try and give up, uh, your mind plays some really, really nasty tricks on you. You, you become, you know, really aggressive and in, in the sort of subconscious way that you, your, you know, your wife or your loved one will say, Jesus, you're a nightmare. Just go and have a cigarette. And then, you know, it, it puts the, it puts the blame off you. Then it's not your fault. They've told you to go and have a cigarette. So it's all these little, uh, you know, tricks that your brain plays on you. Um, so by the brilliant thing about this book is you can smoke while you're quitting, which is, sounds a really bizarre thing, but it's one of the selling points for this book is that the process of you getting your mind ready to quit is one of the most stressful things you can go to. And when you're stressed, you're going to want a cigarette, right? So the whole thing about slowly prepping you and building up your mental capacity while you're smoking, getting you ready to extinguish that last cigarette, and then you can walk away from it with a clean slate. And it was uh, everyone I've known who's read that book has quit. That's not, a, that's not hyperbolic. Some have fallen for the trap again, but everyone I've known has quit and quit quit successfully. It's a little, uh, it's a little secret that uh, the tobacco companies don't want you to know about.
0: Um, I have heard about that book, and I've seen two guys read it when I was working for an exchange. They were both reading it on the desk. And I saw the impact it had on them and they both did give up. Um, I don't know whether they stayed given up, but um, it certainly like it made a huge, huge impact. And if you're reading it as a player that's stacking as well, I mean, there's the extra added bonus of all, all of that cash, just going straight into sets.
1: It would be a very, very good driving force because that's obviously, you know, the economic incentive is there, but again, like, I didn't probably appreciate it at the time going through the process because, you know, it's that whole fiat monetary system where you're not getting any benefit from actually saving. It's, it's losing your purchasing power over time. So if you're able to, if, if Bitcoin was around, holy crap, I would have I would have been, um, well, it, it was around when I quit, but I just didn't know about it. So if I, if I had known about it, then, uh, you know, that, that's double incentive to, to, you know, finally extinguish that last dairy and never turn back.
0: Love it, mate. Absolutely love the Aussie-isms. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let, let, let's get to the grid. Uh, one day you turn up as an apprentice, you know, not bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. You, you were a, a, a ragged old salesman by this stage. W- were you alongside the 18-year-olds? Like, were you, stay, were you taking a lot of stick and a lot of slack?
1: I was, yeah. It was, it was hard to adjust, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um... It it was, it was an adjustment. So I I had actually started my uni degree. Um, So one of the part of the process, or I mentioned earlier that it was difficult to get in. So I sort of took matters into my own hands and started studying an engineering degree, an associate degree in engineering, uh, which helped me uh, help me get in, 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 in start that apprenticeship uh, having a couple of years of that uni degree under my belt. So I wasn't um, I was most probably a little bit exposed but still very naive, and I ha- I really had no idea what I was signing up for um, when I when I joined in. And yeah, 100% right. It was basically lining straight up next to you know the guys straight out of high school, and you know having having to adjust and basically looking at these you know young kids as peers. Um, you know I was no better and no more experienced than them when it when it when it came to the utility. You know
0: so yeah and you're in the classroom as well or were you doing the the degree like via distance
1: yeah I did uh distance education for all my for all my uh university degrees so um but you know when you go and you do an electrical apprenticeship you have to go back to a TAFE course which is TAFE is like a um it's like a tertiary education sort of system uh kind of uh, i I guess it'd be sort of akin to like a community college kind of thing. Um, So there's a TAFE element to your study as well. You go and you, you go and do various blocks and that'll be with a whole heap of different strangers, um, various, um, you know, people doing, going through the apprenticeships themselves, whether that be through, um, you know, private industry or or, uh, private companies and so forth. So you, you you know, again, thrown amongst a whole varying array and usually on the younger side of things although there was a couple of old guys that made me feel a bit better about myself when we through the process.
0: Right, I love it. All right. Okay. So how does this all happen then? How how does let let let's you know go all the way upstream to begin with. Where and let's use your exact utility so you know it inside out. Where is that particular power coming from? How far away is it? How is it being engineered and, and created?
1: So the grid itself, uh, if we if we look at it, um, Australia as an example, so we're a massive, big, interconnected grid between transmission systems and generation units, and they are geographically dispersed around the whole sort of eastern seaboard. So you've got, um, you know, Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, even the island of Tasmania is all interconnected, and it does stretch out into um, South Australia as well. Western Australia is on their own. Um, But basically all the generation, so the generation plants, we've got a vast majority of different generational um, uh, mediums, for lack of a better word. So you've got coal, you've got hydro, you've got PV, you've got wind. um, And they're all geographically dispersed along that uh, eastern seaboard. And they are all interconnected by a big, massive transmission network. So transmission being the really, really high voltage network. And we can talk about why that's important um, a a little bit later. Uh, We we might come back to that. But um, so transmission, basically, you have to generate a really high trans, um, high voltages in order to minimize your losses on the network. And that's why you typically see, you know, 132 kV to 275 kilovolt systems for the transmission. And that's the whole big interconnected web that joins all of those states together. Now, each of these separate entities. So I work for a local utility that's mainly distribution. So we don't own the transmission lines. We only own the distribution lines. So there's another entity in Queensland that sits over top again, that owns the transmission. Um, We own the distribution. And then there's other entities as well that own all these generational sites. Some are publicly owned, some are privately owned, uh, and they all basically have connection agreements and agreements in place for how much they export and all this sort of thing. And that whole network is controlled by a um, national energy market operator. Uh, So they're they're called AEMO for short, A-E-M-O. And they're basically the market makers and it works just the same as any other typical financial market. So there's bids and asks and supply demand, equilibrium that you need to maintain. And that all dictates about around price and exports and, um, and all that sort of thing. So that's all centrally controlled and forecast to meet demand. So one of the really um, key things to understand when you're talking about generation and, trans- and electricity transmission is that they need to be generating with sufficient capacity for real-time demand. So the supply always has to be there for the demand unless you have some elaborate storage mechanism, which at this stage of the game is a little bit cost prohibitive. Um, there are some you know, outlier examples where, where they are doing that. However, in a general sense, you need to be generating and have enough generators online at the same time as the demand um, and be able to meet that demand at any one, one time, which presents some really unique challenges particularly as technology advances and you have you know things like solar and wind and that sort of stuff that's really intermittent um which again i'd like to probably come back to that a little bit later and expand on those thoughts because that's where you know bitcoin mining and so forth can really play a huge part uh in, in helping to maintain that grid
0: yeah i'm taking lots of notes mate there's a lot of shit to go over Okay, um, yeah, there is. Right. The, the first thing that kind of um, I find interesting here is I had no idea that you'd have one set of people owning the transmission lines, a different set of people owning the distribution lines. And you said there was even private entities that maybe they're like private um, compounds or whatever, they would own that infrastructure as well. That already sounds like there's room there for kind of coercive behavior or, you know, is there anything to dive into there?
1: Probably, there's probably a lot that goes on there behind closed doors that I wouldn't even be be privy to, but um, there's nothing that really stands out for me to give you any clear examples there. Most, like for for Queensland, for example, that's probably less of a problem because we've got companies called like Stanwell, uh, which is a government-owned entity, uh, say so state government owned entity and they own a lot of the generation sites then we've got Powerlink, which own the transmission site and are the government owned entity and then you've got ergon so why we all wear sort of different hats under different entities for us in Queensland the majority of that is Queensland government owned so a lot of the sort of agreements uh, are sort of done at that ministerial level and then we just go out and, and execute whereas it gets a little bit more complicated in states like um, Victoria and so forth, where, you know, there's the, I'm all for, there's a fine balance when it comes to utility in my mind. And I still struggle with this concept because I'm, I'm a capitalist by heart, but sometimes, you know, I struggle with this concept around government ownership of, of these entities where, you know, there has to be some regulation. It's electricity and people need it. And we have examples of where, you know, there's a a company in Victoria who has been known to, you know, it's a privately owned entity and they run the distribution system in Victoria and they've been known to be, you know, um, tightening the purse strings in regards to maintenance and ongoing maintenance. And that's not good when, you have people relying on the safe delivery of that technology. So it's something you always struggle with. And it's probably a good example of of where you were getting that right with your question about coercive behaviour and so forth. It's more about incentives and, you know, if we can spend less to maintain their infrastructure to a certain standard, then, of course, a private entity is going to do that, whereas we find with the government-owned entity, it's it's a bit more probably gold-plated. And, again, there you could argue that there's probably a lot of waste uh, in, in, in regards to the capital allocation of, of of maintaining those sort of things. And, of course, you know, we get paid hourly. So we're the classic guys leaning on the shovel. <laughs> when, when you look at it objectively, you know, it's the, the typical council, you know, the council worker jokes. I'm sure they're um, just as relevant in, in you know, in, in most countries where, where you get a bit of stick about, uh, you know, not working the absolute hardest that you could possibly be because you're a government-owned entity, you know.
0: Yep, you're going to have that cup of tea on the go, mate, at some stage. That's it,
1: exactly. Throughout your, we cool?
0: throughout your eight hours Uh that you're billing the whole time. And, and I think like um from, you, you call it AMO, right? A-E-M-O? I'm yep. guessing the equivalent will probably be Ofgem in the UK. Uh This kind of like regulatory body that they would stand there and try and, I mean, the, the, the job that they would say they're doing is to prevent monopolies uh, controlling all of the uh, all of the power, um, because we we just can't have these capitalist pigs uh, coming in and, you know, controlling all of this. So to oh, like you, on one hand, yeah, I get that. But on the other hand, prices of electricity, do nothing but go up, up, up and up. Uh, so if there was competition, surely there would be a natural downward trend in the price of electricity. So something's not firing somewhere. And this idea as well about like, well, you know, because it, I mean, it has to be central, right? Because you've, it's gotta come into that utility to that grid to get dispersed everywhere else. You, you, you can't have tens of thousands of these little, that, that just doesn't scale that way. I mean, it scales if it comes through the grid
1: Yeah, exactly. I think it's a fine balance. So I I think that regulator plays a critical role. And even, you know, when I say that they're going to cut corners with their maintenance and so forth, obviously to a degree where that is regulated. And even like for our state entities, so there's a whole group of of people that will basically work full time on the next, um, I forget the terminology off the top of my head, but we have to submit to the regulator about what projects, what capital expenditure and what um, maintenance costs we forecast and are projected out for the next period, which I think they work on like a five year cycle. So they need to be submitting to the regulator on this constant cycle, how much we're going to spend, which obviously then comes back and regulates what we can charge for prices, um, for the electricity pricing and so forth. So there's always that, I think there's always got to be that regulating body that, you know, basically sets your price floor. Um, And obviously a private operator would then be able to go out to market and basically sell that for, for, for any amount that they deem sort of necessary. And that's where your competition obviously comes into play. And where there are retail operators um, as well within, uh, you know, which are, which are, different marketing uh, sorry they call them metering services so metering services go out and that can be contracted and that's not necessarily a government entity to who you actually pay your bill to so there's a whole web of complexity but I think just to your earlier point it always comes back always going to have to come back to some governing body uh, to make sure that you know people are getting the basic you know basic human services, which is electricity, to their door at a reasonable price.
0: Have you ever been all the way uh, upstream to the uh, the power plants?
1: I do, so part of my job being a remote location, we do a lot of contract work because um, we're high voltage specialized um, in, in my particular area, which we'll talk about a bit later, uh, being a test technician. Um, we've got specialist skills that aren't as so readily available. So we get contracted out quite a bit to do work on behalf of, say, the transmission operator is Powerlink. I work for a company called Ergon or Energy Queensland. Um, So we will do a lot of contract work for Powerlink because they just don't have staff up here, but they have infrastructure and they have services um, that need maintenance and and need projects and so forth. So we do a lot of that sort of stuff. And I also do a bit of work... um, so at, say, for example, the power stations. Uh, so a, a couple of the hydro power stations here, the PowerLink have got some um, you know, infrastructure at those power Link, at those sites as well. So we're often there as well doing. So I'm always hunting around there looking for where I can plan a Bitcoin mining rig and so forth. That's always top of my mind. And the, the staff, they get a bit shirty with me because I'm always popping them with questions about, you know, all the opportunities that might be there, how much stranded energy, how much how much is wasted, how much water spills over the spillway and so forth. So I'm always hunting around, looking, sniffing out the deals.
0: This is where like, it becomes so interesting to me because I've been around a hydro plant here in France that they're all over the place. There are a lot of rivers, right? So uh, we walked around one in um, Toulouse and it's, it's truly fascinating the, the way it all works. And, you know, you can get down there and see the inner workings of it. And like you, I'm just thinking like, my God, the, the, the opportunity here just to plug in some miners um, to and it, it sounds crazy but just that act alone you can then start managing the waterways more efficiently. you can stop the floods or you can um, you know uh, have a huge impact on natural reserves by always having the damn thing on and having instead of the water coming up and coming down each time you need it you know it it blows my mind
1: yeah and that that's like and there's so many of those examples everywhere so you've got solar projects like you know australia is such a big there's so much opportunity in australia in particular always gets my um gets me excited talking about it but um it's starting to to come in there have been a few companies i'm not following them too closely but there have been a few companies start um popping up with direct connections to the market operators and so forth but you know we're, we're such a big country with such a big like desert for example so much solar potential you know in the middle of nowhere but one of the biggest challenges which you know i highlight in some of the articles that i've written in the in the bitcoin for plebs is you know you need to monetize that. So one of the biggest challenges with, um, with these energy sensors is they're nowhere near to the consumer base. So they're not profitable to run. You know what I mean? So if your generation capacity is nowhere in the vicinity, direct vicinity of the people, the end users who are going to use that demand then it becomes a really expensive operation in order for you to build out that, electricity grid to get that power to the people that need to use it, or even to tap into the existing infrastructure that might exist there. So if you have the ability to execute on the generational side, Bitcoin is the perfect, Bitcoin mining is a perfect solution to plant, you know, just a containerized shipping container with full of miners right on site and start monetizing that generational capacity straight away. Put that back into your treasury, and then slowly but surely then you've got a capital base to work off um, in order to start building out that grid and get those connections in place and there's just like everywhere you look here in australia there's just so much opportunity it's like a kid in a candy store sometimes you're just like i just need to go out and raise a shitload of money and just start building these containers and start plonking them in in people's (laughs) in people's backyards you know what i mean uh with 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 some of these opportunities And, and and just go back to the hydro example so I mean, I live in um, tropical North Queens. Then we get a shitload of rain here. Uh, and so in the, so if I can just step back a little bit and just fill in a little bit of the blank with the market operator. So with the market operator, say for example, uh, it's a sunny day uh, and they've got the base load of coal generation. That's normally typically required in order for you to maintain a nice, safe um, baseline of supply. If we've got a lot of, you know, solar from down south in South Queensland coming onto the grid, then there's no further requirement for any further generation, right? So your generation for hydro, for example, might actually go zero bid or even a negative bid if there's too much, and we can talk about that and explain that a little bit, expand on that a little bit later, but if there's even too much, you can, it's not uncommon to see the demand for this energy go negative, right? So, if you are the operator of this hydro facility, the market zero bid, for example, and you've got your weirs are full, and it's raining in, in your locality, you've got all this water spilling over the spillway down into the river system, going out into the ocean. And it's basically just like watching fuel pour down the the. It's it's money pouring out into the ocean. So, if again, if you can have a system in place where you have Bitcoin mining in a very close location. They can, what they, uh, they they can go into a state called islanding, which basically all that means is you disconnect yourself from the rest of the grid and you're your own little island nation, basically of of generation. And as long as you've got load there, i.e. Bitcoin mining capacity, um, you can basically fire up your generators instead of that water running over the spillway. You filter it through your generators, your hydro generators, and you generate electricity which was otherwise wasted. Right. And this is the key point. And a lot of why these miners are focusing on, you know, the the Bitcoin mining gets so much fudder around the ESG and all this sort of stuff with wasted energy, but we're incentivized by the nature of Bitcoin mining in itself to find these sources of otherwise wasted or cheap or stranded sources of electricity to plug into. And it's just a crazy notion to say, why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we monetizing this money that's spilling out into the ocean?
0: think of the difference that can make for the community and the infrastructure around the town. And, you know, it's, it's so blatant.
1: Exactly. Right. And particularly when you've got a labor focused government, which we have in Queensland, for example, they're all about jobs and security. If you can, if you can, if the state government wanted to do this, there's basically a whole kitty of funds there to spur, to invest back into, you know, local infrastructure and, build jobs and build community and it, it's a it's a kitty sitting there they're crazy not to not to seek this out and it's a government it's government-owned utility it's government-owned companies it's government-owned infrastructure why aren't they you know obviously there's an opportunity for private private companies to come in and, and do this uh, alongside you know with the bitcoin money but all that profit can basically filter back into the government and they can go and utilize those the, that capital to enact their their policies and their, you know, if they want to build jobs or roads or, or whatever they, the case is, there's free money sitting there
0: waiting to be tapped into. The way I, I see it would be some kind of revenue share with like a very professional team of Bitcoin. They're, they're out there now, right? There's Bitcoin mining firms out there that are doing this. You know, Steve Barber over in Canada, like perfect example. I mean, this isn't like woohoo kind of like thinking it's mechanical it's made it's done it's engineered we have the capacity there are companies that could literally walk up to that utility in this make-believe town wherever we're talking about and you know pitch the government and say look you own the grid we can plug into it just give us i mean what do you need you need like the size of a shipping container that's all the land we need we'll take your excess energy we will mine it and we will revenue share with you and then you negotiate on that those terms and that's it that's it simple as that
1: um you know and 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 as you say this thing is being done already time and time again but you've you know it's just crazy to think that a large country like australia it's not being done to the degree that we're starting to see in other countries and there's just such an opportunity there um, you know, it's only a matter of time before this this starts really taking off, and and, and those things are starting to realise. But um, at this stage, I'm just not seeing it on the ground.
0: Well, you're in the perfect position to uh, to keep pilling and uh, and educating people, and your your writing has been perfect for that. You know, you're educating the plebs, but. Uh, it's your colleagues as well that are going to be, you know, starting to take notice of this. I'm sure. All right, so we've we're we coming downstream. We're coming now to uh, where you are at the utility. Uh, why does your phone ring? If what what's the kind of problem? What what what's uh, what's the phone call you do not want to receive at 2 a.m. <laughs> uh,
1: so I work in substations mainly. So if we just take a step back and I will explain what the substation is, so. Typically, when the generational centres generate their power, they're not doing it at transmission levels. So we have to step up that voltage to a level where we can transmit it over the transmission network. And then when it arrives at your geographical town centres, for example, they will step that down to a distribution level. So again, we've got these substations, which are basically just full of really big metallic-looking plants um, for, for people who, who sort of, you might drive past them and not even see them half the time, uh, but they're, they're everywhere. Um, and the substations have typically the biggest piece of plant in that is, is a transformer. And a transformer is used to step up or down voltages from one level to another. So typically the situation that look in, in, in Queensland is the 132 kV line would come up the coast, come into a major load centre. Um, And then we would step that down to a sub-transmission level. So it goes from 132 kV down to perhaps 66 or 33 kV. And that's our sub-transmission level. That network goes out. And then we've got all these other little zone substations geographically dispersed around load centres. And then from there, we would step down that voltage from 66 down to something like 22 or 11 KV. And those are the distribution feeders that then go out, They'd be whether they be underground or your typical poles and wires that you see, you know, your wooden poles and um, 3 wire system that, that goes around your town. And then from there, you've got the poles in the air and we'll have distribution transformers, which are just big hunks of metal, Stuck on the side of the poles, and they will step that down from say twenty two or eleven kV down to your general household voltage, which for Australia is four fifteen across three phases, uh, or your typical normal household supply is just a single phase two hundred and thirty volt supply.
0: What does a phase mean? I've got to ask the pleb question. What what's a phase?
1: <laughs> a phase. Uh, so the simplest the simplest uh, explanation. Geez, that's actually quite a simple. Question without a simple answer, but there a phase is just one. So typically in a system, uh, there's three phases. Okay, so you have got red, white, and blue, A, B, or C, depending on how you want to label them. And it just depends on, without getting too technical about how that's connected at the at the grid. That's normally so between phases. If you were to take a multimeter, for example and you had a three-phase system and you took your multimeter, you took your red lead and your blue lead and you went between them, you would have a 415-volt potential, so that voltage between those two lines. Whereas if you take your multimeter and you were to go between any one of those lines to ground, to, to an earth, then that would be 230 volts. And it's basically just a way of us uh, distributing the power in a nice, even, balanced manner. So across those three phases would be basically current going out to your load centers. And it just depends on what sort of um, power requirements you have at your installation as to how many of those phases you would need. So typically um, an industrial complex with welding machines or something that takes a lot of of big power, they're gonna want a three phase system. They're gonna want to see all three of those phases because their power requirements are gonna be a lot higher than say just your normal household they're going to be probably okay with just a single phase, if that makes sense. So it's just three different wires delivering th- three different um, avenues. Use of power consumption, I guess, is the easiest. I'm hoping that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I think so. Uh, so in a house, for example, we, we'd only need one phase really just because we just want to turn the TV on. Uh the kettle, the lights, uh, and whatever else. But somewhere else that's running huge machinery um, is going to need that extra power, right? Got it. Now,
1: Yes, it all comes down to power ratings. So it depends how much power you need. Uh, So, and it's all, it comes back to, I don't know if we want to touch on this now, Um, it comes down to current draw. And and, um, so when you have a piece of machinery, plugged into the system it's going to draw x amount of current and it's all about how much current can your installation that being your the wires that supply that installation how much current carrying capacity it can handle because as as you have current flowing through a conductor a piece of metal that generates a lot of heat and then so that particular arrangement of of conductor is only going to be rated for a certain amount of current to pass through it before it will melt and it becomes a piece of fuse wire so if you remember back in the day before we had circuit breakers and so forth you know you might you might remember back in the installations you would only have in your in your switchboard in your home fuse wire you wouldn't have these switches so your mum and dad would have to go out from time to time and rewire this switch and that's basically the same concept so these Pieces of wire, these f- pieces of fuse wire were rated to a certain amount of current and they were designed on purpose to once you exceeded that current, it would melt and it would melt open. And that was your protection system. So it, it all is scalable back right up to the, to the system where we want to limit how much current at all times flowing through a piece of wire because that generates heat and that heat is, is excess energy that's otherwise wasted. So when you think back to your example with your house, like typically our loads aren't huge. So we put the TV and like you say, we put the TV and the kettle on and so forth. So our total current consumption energised at 230 volts is only going to be, you know, a certain amount and it's not going to melt any wires that we have coming to our house. Whereas as soon as that installation becomes a bit more complex, like you put, you know, you want to put 10 S 19s in your garage. <laughs> that that changes the equation. Now you now all of a sudden you've become a very large power user and your typical single phase installation is no longer is no longer suitable.
0: Right. I got it. And that makes a lot more sense now because when we moved into uh, into this house, uh, it's a really old there was a really old electrical board downstairs, exactly what you were um, explaining. Uh, you'd go down and you'd have to unscrew them and check um, the fuses in there and whatever else. Uh, because, you know, there's six of us, right? And there's always a washing machine going and there's always a tumble dryer going in the winter times, at least. Or there's a dishwasher going or there's a television going or we're all on our computers and I'm being interrupted right now as they're coming in to get their computers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh.
1: charger Yeah, go
0: um and it kept breaking right uh, so that that was why we were just demanding too much energy from too many things at the same time but it was just running a normal family life so having um having it upgraded was was uh, essential
1: yeah exactly and um so that's that's really probably a good good catalyst just going back to your earlier question about what what makes my phone ring so my job specifically, is protection systems. So if we think about that fuse example, if you've got too much current flowing through that little fuse, it's going to melt and it's going to pop open, going to break your circuit, and you no longer have a circuit, you no longer have that load, and that's your protection system, where the next iteration of that for your home installation is a circuit breaker. So they're rated for a certain amount of current flow to flow through them before you'll exceed how much current flows through there, and it's designed to open up and protect that circuit. So it's gonna break the load. Um, And then if you scale that all the way back up to the substations, so when we bring those high voltages down we step them down and we distribute them out, we've got all these various protection systems in play to um, basically make sure you have a safe, reliable operation of that system. So when we come down to a, a, a typical substation arrangement, we'll have what we call feeders come out of that substation. You might have five or six, depending on how, how big that is, and they'll go off in all different directions. And the whole point of that being we want to try and, there's this keyword called discrimination. We want to discriminate between uh, faults on the network so that your whole town doesn't go out and go in a blackout if, you know, Princey drops his fork in the toaster. So there's discrimination in your system. So we're hoping that your circuit breaker catches your circuit before you affect the upst- next upstream device, which might be a fuse out on that transformer out on the pole. And because if we didn't discriminate at your switchboard, then your neighbor would lose power as well and anyone else off that transformer. And the same thing, the next system up might be another switch out on the network that segregates that little T off part of the network in that geographical location. And if we didn't have that in play, then we turn off that whole feeder. So anyone else in that system off that feeder would lose power as well. And that could be a couple of thousand people at any one time. And then if we step that back up, even one more step, if we didn't have that system in place on that feeder, then we would probably wipe out that whole substation, in which case your whole town goes black. So when my phone rings, in the middle of the night, it's typically because that whole town's gone black and those protection systems haven't done what they've been designed to do for whatever, a whole host of, of various reasons. Typically for us, wildlife. So, you know, we live in the tropics and snakes like to climb things and snakes like to find warm things to climb and they'll climb up on those transformers and they will flash over from face to face, and that's going to ruin your day.
0: Wow, that's nuts. Right, okay. and How on earth do you look... Locate, like, do you know which one, say that's happened, do you know which pole? Like, uh, did, do you have that information?
1: Uh, you Depending on the system, so in a transmission protection system, um, we've got various different protection, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, protection um Oh, geez, I'm going to get roasted when I go back to the boys at work. So uh, depending on how the installation looks, but we've got – so there's a thing called distance protection, for example, where we model the transmission line, and that protection system can basically detect how far down a line, based on modelling, a fault would have occurred. So if we have a tree come down on the network at a certain location, the amount of current flow through – Back to that, um, and these are very clever systems. So, you know, my earlier description of a circuit breaker, that's a pretty dumb, for want of a better term, protection system, whereas our relays are alphanumeric computational relays, they take a lot of input, a lot of data, and do um, basically a lot of algorithms to to model out different systems. So on this distance protection system, we would have all the typical... Um, data in for the length of line and the resistance of that length of line and then that would be all proportional to how much current flows back to the to the source in the event of a fault and then that relay is clever enough to look at that and say i see a fault it exceeds my parameters of an acceptable allowance for load i'm going to trip and then we can basically come out and detect what feeder that was which direction that went and then it, we might actually get the indication that it was 4.12 kilometers downstream from from the source, and then so that gives our our um, the guys on our lineies uh, and our and our workers the an idea of where they need to go and patrol to look for whether where the problem occurred. So there are certain and depending on the scheme and and how much so all that comes at a cost, right? So for a transmission system, you basically want to know the location of that pretty quick and you want to get that back online. So it's worth the expense to go and put that protection scheme. That was the word I was looking for before scheme, the protection scheme in place uh, for that. Whereas if you're just like a normal distribution feeder feeding normal residential area, a simple um, overcurrent or earth fault protection system would suffice. And the overcurrent earth fault protection systems are simply just monitoring how much current is flowing in the network and we know how much is a typical for the typical load in that area. And we can set our upper limit. So if say for example, our pickup for a fault is hundred amps because we know typically at its worst day that feeder might only draw 60 amps. So as soon as we start to get above 60, 70, 80, 90, we'll have some alarms go off and say, oh, we've got some issues here. And then we can look at, is it load or is it, uh, you know, is it a really hot day and everyone's got their air conditioners on? Or do we have an issue here and it's probably, um, you know, if there is a genuine fault, normally that current would fly up way past that 100 amp limit and we know it's something abnormal on the system and we would trip and that hole breaker would open and that hole feeder would go.
0: Come on, mate. We, we want the heart and mouth moments. Have you ever flicked a switch and just blacked out a city?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done a city, but I did 45 <laughs> megawatts of of solar generation uh out of out of the solar generation plant which shall remain nameless. So uh, we so part part of my job is, you know, we can't turn the lights off, which is the issue, right? So no one likes to have their lights out when we're working. So we're often working in a live situation where we will take part of that protection system. So normally there's a main and a backup protection and we would take any one of those out at a time to do our maintenance on. So if, if, if I'm to sort of just draw a picture mentally of, of what this looks like, there's a little block of why is coming in and why is coming out the top sides, the bad bit, the bottom sides, the good bit, right. Or vice versa. And if you put your little test probe into the wrong spot, potentially you'll, you're blacking out the city. So it's a, it's a, it's a really, it happens more often than we care to admit. Uh, and, you know, we're human. So it's it's human error, but there are steps and mitigation processes we put in place to minimise that at all costs. But in this particular day, I was not long back to the role, actually. I'd spent some time doing other things and come back, and uh, we were at a 45-megawatt solar farm, and we sent them what is essentially a trip signal for them to open up all their breakers. Little did we know they didn't have a high-voltage um, qualified switcher on site, so they had to fly somebody in. Took three days to get somebody in and get them all back online. So they were not too happy with us.
0: So what uh a little bit more terminology, and thanks for admitting that. That you you guys must have the best stories when you're down the pub. Oh, you, you remember the time Wino did uh like the, the whole blackout of Mumba Jumba? <laughs> Exactly.
1: So we, uh, we actually like uh, our Christmas parties at the end of the year. Normally, one of us gets the Prince of Darkness award. So that's who's <laughs> mucked up the most, and, and, and we'll, we'll present them with. The <laughs>
0: of who, who, who holds the record? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I'm no, not going to no. say. No,
1: no, names. no, no names.
0: but but all right. The biggest one, like, is there been like a, a whole, Like the, the most people affected. Is that how you like award the Prince of Darkness?
1: Yeah. So customer minutes is a metric that they they, they sort of measure. So it's um how many people for how long. Right is uh, so obviously if you've got a lot of people for a long time, that number's going to accelerate pretty quickly. So um, i actually don't know what the record is for our local our local depot. I don't think anyone likes to admit it. I think you know it does leave you some battle scars. It's it's a lot like uh, you know you, you have PTSD and you know it, it's one of those things. No one likes to be responsible for that, and uh, it's 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 some pretty dark days. Like some of the guys have had some some <laughs> some pretty depressed you know, a couple of days after one of these big events because it's, it's, it's a pride thing and it's a, uh, you know, you've, you've affected a large amount of people, but uh, it's never pretty, it's never fun. And, you know, these these things make a really loud noise, uh, these circuit breakers. So we have a very, you know, similar to those circuit breakers in your, in your switchboard, you just scale that up to a really big size. Like we're talking the size of a, a small truck chassis uh, uh cab right is potentially what these larger circuit breakers on the transmission so when they go they make a big bang so you know and there's this awful hum that and uh, uh, silence that occurs after you've tripped one of these things so you know there's, there's all this background noise and these things are humming away and it's kind of background noise and then they trip there's this really loud bang and then there's this eerie quiet <laughs> so so you know you know you've You've done the wrong thing.
0: And then and the everyone bang, just standing around looking science. at each other. Like, is that like, uh, what do you do, mate? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Point fingers.
1: <laughs> Was it me? What did you do? Yeah, And then it, and then not too long after the phone rings, you know. So, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, that, that's okay. the control center who are, who are, you know, responsible for making sure everything's on. And they'll say, what did you do? you know typically they'll know because they get the alarm up (laughs) to to know exactly what you've done but yeah it's never a nice feeling
0: have you ever been awarded with the prince of darkness
1: i have not i have not so
0: (laughs) and what 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 does that person get what what did i have to do like chug a pint or something like what yeah
1: yeah just or is the shame just enough enough, enough nothing it's just a shame you get the, um, the sort of trophy and you get to hold on to it for the year and you get your sort of a name on it and it, it gets passed on. The baton gets passed on the following year. So you just hope that you don't get it two years in a row, you know?
0: These are the stories the plebs are here for. This is... My, my face <laughs> is aching, mate. <laughs> yeah, you're right. We shouldn't be laughing. We shouldn't be laughing. There'll be poor dear old ladies, like, you know, trapped in their house without electricity. But... uh Uh, all right um the plebs also want to know how can they rig up and start mining from home like uh is this is this a possibility is this this just completely out of our reach what are the absolute no-no's and what are the things you know what are those what boxes need ticking before you even consider it so
1: s9s are a good place to start because they interface typically with your normal household installation very well. So they're only 1.2 to 1.3 kilowatts, which means when you scale that down and any plebs who are interested in, in, in learning the math and so forth, you can reference um, a couple of the articles I wrote energy for plebs. Uh, so the first article goes through a couple of the formulas and calculations that you'll need to know when, you wanna know how much current's gonna be drawn from these miners, right? So when you plug them into a normal, what we call GPO, which is just a um, short for general purpose outlet. So your normal socket outlet. So here in Australia, they're typically only rated for 10 amps, okay? So when you go and plug in an S9, um, they are typically rated about eight amps from memory. I'm just got to quickly do the math on that. At 1200 divided by 230, oh, sorry, five, 5.2 amps. So they're okay to run off a normal normal switch. Whereas if you go to an S19, okay, now this is one of the reasons if you buy an S19 miner, they actually come with two, two plugs. So there's two different, um, so you can split the power source between two of these GPOs. However, there's a bit of complexity that arises with this. So they're typically 3250, right? And if we are uh, to divide that by 230 to get our power draw, uh, it's 14.13 amps. Okay, so you can't plug that into your typical double GPO, your double socket outlet, because you're going to exceed the rating of that GPO. Uh, That's only rated at 10 amps. Will it take it? Yes. Could you melt it? Probably. Um, At 14 amps long-term. And and you got to remember, too, like your typical – your miners, they're running hot 24-7. At least you want them to be running hot 24-7. You want to maximise – uh maximize its, its, its output right so you want them running hot all the time and if you run 14 amps typically through something that's only rated at 10 amps it is at some stage going to fail and could that cause a fire maybe um, probably low probability but it's not it's not um you know it, it's typically going to melt first before catch fire but i wouldn't be risking that I wouldn't be hanging my hat on that on that bet. So what you've got to consider, if, if the bigger the miner you go, now you've got to start thinking about splitting them up between not even be, just between GPOs, but even between circuits. So if you have an existing circuit in your house, for example, like you said before, with your example, you had the washing machine and the tumble dryer running and you were popping fuses all the time. It's going to happen again. If you're going to run 14 amps, of an S19 through the same circuit and you've got other things on that circuit in your home, you're going to trip that 16 amp, which is a typical rating for your circuit breakers all the time. And it's going to piss your wife off. So you're going to, it's worthwhile going and finding uh, or getting an electrician in and installing an own dedicated circuit for, for those miners. And then, you know, that's only for one miner. So what happens when you want two or you want three? And these are the sort of considerations that, that you need to make. So for me at home, I run um, some S9s. I've been running one S9 for a little while and I was waiting on um, a delivery for a few more and I've only, they've only just arrived the other day. So I've got two running at the moment. And S9s are manageable in terms of being able to integrate with your house easier than, say, S19s that are going to um, you know, draw a bit more power. The consideration you then need to make is whether your home electricity prices, their hash rate isn't as high as the S19s per, per watt or per kilowatt. So there's a trade-off there that you're going to make, uh, and that is all going to depend on your um, on what you can get your energy costs for.
0: Right. Well, the, the, the absolute no-no's. Like, just don't even consider it. Like, you know, what? Because we don't want anybody going out and blowing themselves up.
1: <laughs> don't, don't do electric electrical mods on your own if you do not know what you're doing and you're not uh, trained professional. So that's a licensed trade, particularly here in Australia. Um, I don't know what other jurisdictions and other countries are, but typically, do not try DIY electrical installations. Because you if you don't know what you're doing, you will either kill yourself or someone you love, possibly. And that's that's probably the biggest no-no, the biggest thing I could stress. Uh, don't try the DIY thing. Um, as far as like everything else, like if you can plug it into a GPO, like typically you're gonna be okay, right? That we've already spoken about the S19 issue and the and the dual and the and the and the dual plugs find a separate GPO. You're going to know pretty quick if you're exceeding the power draw of that circuit, because you're going to be tripping that circuit breaker all the time. And then it would just be a case of trying to find another GPO on another circuit in your home, just try and split that load across. And if you're a home mining, as soon as you get above one S19, you're really going to have to start thinking about your installation. And you're probably going to want to get somebody in to, to start looking at, at your install, you know, a couple of S9s at home, you know up to three or four even five you could you could get away with dispersing them depending on where you're going to run them to because they're noisy Um, so you know you've got those challenges as well but you know when you are talking about more than one s19 that's really when you're probably going to have to start thinking about what you're doing and get some get get somebody in to have a look at your electrical installation and see what the most optimal way of of doing that so i know a couple of guys who have ramped up, have chosen to ramp up their S nineteen operations at home, and they're quickly finding they're exceeding their single phase two hundred and thirty volt supply because they're typically only rated to sixty, maybe eighty amps. So as soon as you, you know, we only need five, five mining rigs and your normal household load before you're starting to exceed that, that rating. Um, you're already exceeded at five. So you know that's when you start needing to now, okay, is it a three-phase installation at home? So I can split that across three phases then. And then you've got different um, circuitry and then you'd have, you know, if you've got an electrician coming anyway, you would then have them run dedicated circuits for your mining rig. And then sort of once you exceed that, you really start to question whether you're really running a commercial operation. So you should be probably going to look at, Scaling up even further and finding an industrial complex with the dedicated supply, uh, and a lot of those places are already fit for purpose. You know, they're already built out. If you can find an old industrial warehouse that used to have uh, welders, they're really high energy. That installation to the to the switchboard is is typically going to be pretty good fit for purpose.
0: Interesting. All right. <clears throat> um, Citadels. Have you got like a little secret electrician pleb Telegram group where you all share these ideas and you're going to start like uh, pimping yourselves out to the, the citadel uh, owners that are, are trying to be, because there's a huge need, right? Uh, I was listening to yeah. a Mestadel, um episode the other day with uh, with Chino Solex and Max on Max's podcast, bit by bit, uh, and this is what I love about the the network, you know, the plebs leaning on each other for their expertise electricity is going to be huge. And especially if you're trying to build uh, a citadel around self-generated electricity and using that to mine and power, let's say five or six houses, right? Let's not get crazy. Let's say someone's got some land in Mexico, wherever, and they've built the houses. They now want to attract Bitcoiners. Uh, One, how do they generate their own electricity? Is this because we call them intermittents? You wanted to come back to that. So now's a good point. Uh, can, is that a reliable source of energy to, to power five or six homes and can you power uh, like a little mining operation off of that at the same time and can you install all that good questions so
1: whether you can island off on your own that's, that's a really difficult thing to achieve reliably uh, at Without significant expense. So battery technology is becoming more prevalent, more affordable. Um, it's getting better. I actually have a ten and a half kilowatt hour battery in my home installation. So I've got six point six kilowatts worth of panels on the roof. I have a five kilowatt inverter/slash battery charger, battery management system, and I've got an LG Chem ten and a half kilowatt hour battery installed in my garage. So my Typically, my wife works from home, so she's home through the day. So she's normally – we try and use as much power through the day as we can to offset um, basically the free power that's from the sun that's beaming down on the, on the roof. Anything excess charges the battery, and then anything excess to that, once that's full, exports to the grid at a pittance. So we get, I think, it's $0.07 per kilowatt hour export. So that's where I looked at my mining, and I thought – I don't want to be paying that seven cents export because it's worth nothing. I would rather any excess mine Bitcoin with and stack those Sats. So S9s were a great solution because they were affordable um, to be able to, to, to be able to do that. The, the challenge lies when you want to completely island yourself off off there. It's all about that power management distribution. So that ten and a half kilowatt hour, we're we're pretty heavy power users. We live in the tropics. We got air conditioners running like a lot. Um, for, for good or for worse. But um, the problem well, that 10.5 kilowatt-hour battery, we will suck that dry by, say, 9 o'clock at night, um, regardless not having mining rigs running. So we would typically have enough to charge that up. But by the time kids come in from school, you're cooking dinner, you've got all those elements going, you've got an air conditioner going, you've got heating elements going, that sucks that dry by about 9, 10 p.m. And then we're relying off the grid, We then import from the grid between 10 and when the sun comes up the next day. So in order for you to have enough capacity to be completely self-sufficient, you would need to diversify your generation between a few different systems. And I would say if you wanted to completely tie yourself off from the grid, it would be worth your while having diesel generation as backup, solar, wind and batteries. So you want to be making sure that you're optimizing for that draw-in, and you don't ever want to be stuck without the ability to to be able to generate electricity for yourself, particularly if you you know your fridges and all that sort of stuff are going to come off. So that's where your diesel generator would come on to be able to pick up that load um, and do that. So islanding islanding is difficult. If you can have grid connection, if at all possible, that's worthwhile doing.
0: Are you up for you know being the man around town that can go and contract out to to help the plebs build these citadels? Giddy up,
1: let's do it! Yeah. So in answer to your question, there's not a uh, there's not a Telegram group that I'm aware of anyway. But um, you know, DMs are open on Twitter too. If anybody's got got questions or whatever, I love as you can probably tell, I love talking about this stuff. So it's a, it's a perfect blend of passions, you know between Bitcoin and electricity. So, um, you know, there's a couple of telegram groups. So there's a Bitcoin Australian mining group. We're pretty, um, you know, we, we, we share a lot of ideas and that sort of stuff uh, just locally in the sort of Australian market and just looking at opportunities and so forth. And, you know, like you say, the community is such a good, such a great community because everyone's just so forthcoming with, skills experience and knowledge and you know everyone's willing to share and learn and grow off each other so it's a really nice thing to be a part of and um as i said the two passions combine uh electricity and bitcoin what what, what more could you want
0: absolutely mate it's been uh incredible rip so so much information in there is there anything we've not touched on that you you wanted to come back to
1: Uh, Probably, if we've got time, I just wanted to sort of reiterate about the, um, you know, just one more opportunity, uh, that which we sort of raised and sort of skipped over, we thought we'd come back to, is Mm -hmm. just that opportunity with base load. So we spoke a lot about wasted opportunity as far as, you know, the water pouring over the the spillways for the hydro, but there's also grid stabilisation forms a really big factor, um, particularly with the proliferation and the expansion of um, solar PV systems on homes in particular. So what we've, in in Australia in particular, where we've uh, really got a, a, a problem upcoming is this whole idea between base load, minimum load, minimum generation, and these renewables that aren't reliable, right? So you've got solar and you've got wind, and that's only increasing over time But they're often not enough to – and not reliable enough to be able to sustain that base load for the normal generation. So our base load generation is coal because it's – while it's dirty, it's relatively cheap and it is reliable. You can maintain that minimum demand. So where where we're having opportunities now in Australia in particular is that you have too much solar coming on. And not enough demand, not enough demand to soak up all that solar plus have these generators running at their minimum operation. So you have all these issues with grid stability and so forth when you don't have enough demand for the generation that comes on. And that solar is something that's not easily turned off. So you're starting to see articles at the moment sort of float around about this idea of actually charging customers now to export in low demand Areas, So this just opens up another opportunity for home miners, Um, you know, when you can couple that with, you know, if you can generate heating for pools and so forth with a little S9 parked in somebody's garage and routed through their their pool water, you've got uh, these ideas of, um, you know, if, if the government's entities are going to start charging you for exporting, how about we just give you a system which not only heats your pool, but, you know, we'll pay you. Or you know, you, you you instead of you getting charged to export, we'll just run it through for free, and we'll hit your pool at the same time. So there's all these you know opportunities that that pop up. That execution of that's obviously difficult, and it comes with some complexities. But um, the the flip side to that, just to touch back on that, the the base level coal is that at a larger scale level. Bitcoin mining can basically step in to say, we will be that minimum demand that you require in order to maintain a safe, effective, reliable generation. So you want these coal um, generators to to come online, right? If we only have, say, like the Gladstone power station has got six 280 kilowatt generators, they might not have all six going and it's not an instantaneous process to get them up and running. So if you're say, I'm just going to throw some arbitrary figures out here. So if you had, I don't know, 500 megawatts worth of solar for Queensland and you had one megawatt worth of generation on, but then a big lot of cloud cover, like a big storm rolled through and it wiped out a good portion of that solar generation, it's not an easy process to then go fire up the rest of those generators in time in order to meet that demand if you're running at the cusp, right? So where, that's where Bitcoin mining can come into play is say, well, why don't you fire up that extra generator? We will take up X amount of your generational capacity. And then if you need that in a hurry, we'll just scale off. We'll just roll back. And then, you know, you're, you're incentivizing the system to, to be able to maintain that profitable baseload of generation that you need to help offset some of these renewables that are just ever increasing.
0: Mate, so many different potential options that uh, it's mind-boggling. And the whole ESG thing just must drive you crazy. Oh, it's it is crazy. It is crazy. Too much E,
1: not enough SG. You know
0: why?
1: (laughs) Why do we focus? You know on the ESG, but we only focus on the E. And you know, I I agree with. We've got all these natural resources. We we need to be tapping into them, but they're just not safe. They're not reliable, and they can't deliver that baseline. Yet, You know what I mean? Like when large scale battery technologies come into play, it might be a different story, but it is just a crazy notion to think that you can start switching off all these, Um, you know, how crazy is it the switching off the nuclear generators in, in places like Germany and so forth. It's, it is absolutely mind boggling. You need that base reliable supply always. And until you have something that's suitable to replace it, i.e. large reliable battery systems, then you just can't switch that off. You need that. Wind and solar will not do it alone.
0: And it comes back to what we were talking about with Lauren, it's all a bit jokey. You know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you need your Wi-Fi, but our species wouldn't be where it was if we didn't have electricity every day. Like we need the power. And if we want to solve these problems, we need that baseline. You know, we've got to actually have that baseline to prosper and get further and get more efficient. And Bitcoin is a huge part of this answer. It's massive. In fact, it fixes it like everything, you know, it, it does.
1: It's, it's a meme, but it's so true. Bitcoin fixes this, Bitcoin fixes energy, uh, you know, and, and it's only a matter of time I see until all energy is priced in, in Bitcoin because of these things we've spoken about and highlighted tonight. It's, um, it's just so intertwined. It is made for the energy network.
0: Well said. Brilliant, Rip. If you had one last orange pill left to give to someone, who would you give it to? Oh, I
1: haven't even thought about this. Um, last orange pill. Last time I gave it to my in-laws. They're still not quite there yet. Um, gee, you've caught me off guard. Orange pill, orange pill. You know what? I don't, I don't have a good answer for that tonight. I would just say, you know, more, more to the plebs, more as a general rule, wage earners in general, um, you know, if I can give a little plug, I'll, 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 I'll keep you posted. But uh, in the background, all this, we've been working on an educational platform, um, which we're hoping, if all goes well, to have something to launch for the Bitcoin Miami conference. I won't be there, unfortunately. But um, a couple of us uh, guys, so Seb Bunny, Jason Sensoni, played music and uh, Greg Foss. We've been working on an education platform in the background, um, basically dedicated to wage earners. So the guys that need bitcoin the most uh and just so happen to be the guys that get fucked over the most with the way that the financial system's engineered which we've spoken about in previous rips. Uh so we just found a real need to hone those messages in distill it down to just the bare bones of what is it that you actually need to know how you're getting fucked and why you're getting fucked and what you can do about it. And we're really excited to, you know, it's, it's coming together. It's been a few months in the making, um, but we're hoping to have something, you know, not not to preempt the, and not be able to deliver, but uh, hoping to have something uh, to, to, to bring. I think um, Greg's going to announce it um, close by to the, the Bitcoin conference.
0: Well, now you've said it, you got to deliver. That's, that's the pressure is on. <laughs> And I know, it would be it. great. I didn't know you guys were doing this. <laughs> this, this is awesome. Uh, you know, I I speak to well, yeah. Pleb Music and I are uh, we, we're always on the same calls with Safe, uh, so you know yeah. I get to hang out with him a lot. Greg's been on the show, obviously. I'd love to get you once you guys drop it. I'd love to to get you all on as a team and uh, and listen to you know how it all came together, the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, and you know pushing over the line. It'd be good fun.
1: For sure. Yeah. It's a, it's a good story. So, you know, it's a, it's a whole different, you know, spattering of guys from all corners of the globe and, you know, just obviously Bitcoin brought us together. Uh, we found that, you know, that, uh, we all agreed there was a need there and it was just, it was just one of those really natural, organic things. It's like, we just have to do this. Um, and it's going to be, it's going to be awesome when it's, when it's launched. I'm really looking forward to it. And, uh, yeah be happy to happy to come back on and give it a plug for sure love it
0: well Daz, thanks for um thanks for reaching back out and and coming back on the show this has been a great rip we've learned loads i'm gonna go away and um look into this try and source some s9s and see if we can get plugged in so i'll be uh, hitting you up in the dms once i've uh, once i've found a few any euro plebs listening to this if you know where i can get some uh, secondhand s9s please dm me
1: awesome man thanks You always got time for you buddy thanks for having me man
0: catch you later and and you know do not become the prince of darkness for 22 like, you know, keep, <laughs> keep it should be, be you
1: actually it's in your name the prince <laughs> you know, it's, it's you
0: on the prince of orange what are you talking about
1: <laughs> the prince of orange love it that's awesome. all right
0: mate take care
1: thanks buddy you too see ya
0: see ya Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode, plebs, with uh, our very own Prince of Darkness, Daz. Get up in his DMs, enjoy the banter with him, learn as much from him as you can. Sounds like such a great scene down in Australia with the Bitcoin guys down there. There's so many cool people doing great work. Open up your country, cobbers. I mean, come on, what's going on? Can you stand up and uh, sort this out? Go shake these people by the throat. Let's take the power back so we can all start mixing with each other and building together and learning from each other. Thank you, Daz, again, for coming on, mate, and uh, for, for writing those pieces that uh, you've written. Make sure you go check them out if you haven't. Please stack, guys. We're in dip territory right now. Or is Bitcoin in a perma-dip? Hmm. There's one to think about. Just go stack. You can use Swan Bitcoin in the U.S. or in Europe or the UK, you can use Coin Corner, Bitcoin Reserve, and Relay. They all have your backs covered. Brilliant services from Bitcoin companies. And then take control of your coins with Shift Crypto. Get that Bitbox 2 hardware wallet, Bitcoin only, and make sure you are in control. And then get your tickets if you can. Travel, check the restrictions, check your uh, requirements. And if you can travel and you do want to get across to the conference, it's Miami, 6th to the 9th of April this year, 2022. You can use code BITTEN at checkout for a 10% discount on all of your ticket purchases, from general admission all the way up to whale pass. If you cannot travel due to COVID regulations, you will get refunded or you'll be able to sell the tickets on to some other plebs that can get there and are FOMOing in towards the date so consider that catch you on the next show and thank you for listening